0: Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to be together again around God's Word. Uh, Page 390 is the one you want, and it'll take us back to Ezra chapter 3, page 390 in the Church Bibles. If you still need one, then do put your hand up, and one will no doubt be brought to you. Uh, This evening we're looking at verses 1 to 7. Let's just ask the Lord's blessing. Our gracious God, eternal Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your word. We thank you that though heaven and earth may pass away, your word never will. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us in your word, in its different parts, in its different books. We thank you for this book of Ezra. And we pray that it may speak to us, you may speak to us through it. And we ask that the words of our mouth tonight and the meditation of our heart, may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. You are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Have you ever watched children trying to dam up a stream? Ours are fun, but they get nowhere. God, who parted the Red Sea, can turn watercourses whichever way he chooses. And just as easily as that, he turns politics, Putin, Xi Jinping, elections in the US and the UK, it may look as if it's all to do with human power, but the proverb says that the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, as rivers of water he turns it wherever he wills. In chapter 1 of this book, we read that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he made a proclamation and put it in writing. Notice that phrase, the Lord stirred him up. God is moving. He stirs up Cyrus. He stirs up the exiles. He stirs up Ezra himself, the leaders of God's people, the, the priests... The different groups of people that we were looking at last week listed in chapter 2. And on the ground, it's because of the pragmatic policy of a world ruler. Cyrus is trying to cover his back, essentially. If he can get the gods of his vassal states to pray for him, well, then he feels safe and he's heard about the God of Israel and he'd rather have Yahweh on his side than against him. And so he makes this decree that the Jewish exiles should return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and its temple. And behind all of that, what we're finding out, God's plans. The Messiah must come, you see, Jesus, is going to build his church. And the Holy Spirit is the divine stirrer. He disturbs, he convicts, he shakes us up. First he moves, and then we move. Kingdom work is not passive. So let's ask ourselves at the outset are you being moved are you just kind of jogging along in your life without ever anything really happening or changing from a spiritual point of view if let me put it this way if you were a jew living in exile in babylon in the sixth century bc would you have gone would you have got up and gone on that journey to rebuild the house of the lord or would you have stayed do you think There have been times in the history of the church when things have fallen into ruin and dilapidation. And it's needed a new movement of the Spirit of God, a new enthusiasm and a new commitment to get the work done. And the book of Ezra is calling us to get busy in kingdom work. It's calling us to a quickened prayer life and to a new obedience to the Word of God in fellowship with the people of God. Now, it was a big thing that they did. They'd been in exile for nearly 70 years, and this now was a a new generation, and they got used to life in Babylon. They were fairly comfortable there. But now, wave after wave of them, they returned to Jerusalem. What was there to attract in Jerusalem, do you think? Jerusalem was in ruins. Its temple and its walls were destroyed. It was just a heap of burnt rubble, and the surrounding landscape was all scarred by invasion, and the neighbors were hostile. But these people had history, didn't they? They had a glorious history of God's faithfulness, of worship, of a temple, of a sacrificial system, of a way for sin to be dealt with and sin to be forgiven. They had a glorious hope. They had the promise of a Messiah. And in the years of captivity, they'd talked about it. They'd remembered it. And now there's revival. There's movement, there's stirring. God is opening the door and there's a new vision for the place where God is worshipped and where sacrifices are made. And the identity of God's people must be preserved and his promises must be fulfilled and the Messiah will suddenly come to his temple in God's timing and in this great work, God involves his people. He can work without us, but he chooses to work with us and through us. And so in chapter 3 we find a people stirred, stirred by God. And the first thing I want to point out to you is that they are stirred to work in unity. They need each other. They need to work together. That's how the chapter begins. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Those returned exiles were in scattered settlements around the city, but now in this seventh month, Ezra tells us they gathered as one man to Jerusalem. You know, you won't achieve anything worthwhile in the kingdom of God by going out on your own by going out on a limb, as it were. God's work involves us in something much bigger than just us. We were looking last week, weren't we, at the various groups of people who, who returned. There were priests, there were Levites, there were singers, there were gatekeepers, there were temple servants, and they all had a role Everyone had something to bring and something to do. It needed leadership, it needed commitment, it needed cooperation, and it needed unity. Unity is a very precious thing among the people of God. And the New Testament talks about the church of Jesus Christ as a living, breathing temple. And each Christian is a living stone. And Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation. And every believer is a priest offering spiritual sacrifices to God. So what kind of a vision do you have tonight for this greater temple, the Church of Jesus Christ? Are you ready to work for it? To work to see its growth? To put your back into it? To serve with others? However humble that service is, Paul talks about laboring together as fellow servants in the kingdom of Christ. Now, if those temple servants have said, well, we're going to leave it to the priests and the Levites, that's their job. Well, the work would never have got done, would it? And when we come together like we are this evening to worship, we must bring something with us. We must bring a sacrifice of praise. We, we all have gifts to offer. And when we're all doing that together, then worship is a beautiful thing, isn't it? How good and how pleasant it is when those who are brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. That's the place where God commands the blessing. Now, later in this book of Ezra, we're going to read more about opposition, but it's it's certainly the case that the devil will try to break up the unity of God's people because he wants to undermine the work. He did here. He wanted to undermine the work that was going on in the rebuilding of the temple, and he wants to undermine, definitely he wants to undermine the work of the church of Jesus Christ. And so Peter, the apostle Peter, says, All of you... Live in harmony with one another. How important that is. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers and sisters, he says. Be compassionate and humble. And Paul says, endeavor. This is a work. This is something we have to work at. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And right at the beginning of the history of the early church, we're told, aren't we, that they met together with one accord, and they met for prayer. And they met to supplicate God, to plead with God for his blessing. Now, if you don't pray regularly with your brothers and sisters, well, by degrees, you'll get more and more distant from them. On the day of Pentecost, you know, they were all with one accord in one place, and that was the place of blessing. That was the place where the Holy Spirit came down in power. Time and time again in their history, the Jews turned back to idolatry, to the gods of the heathen, and to an immoral lifestyle, attractive to the flesh, but an immoral lifestyle that went with it. It was a a tragic tragedy, wasn't it? It was a repeated tragedy in the life of Israel. And these people had seen its emptiness, had seen its futility. And when they were in exile in Babylon, they, they began to long, at least some of them did. They longed for spiritual reality. They longed for the God of their fathers. They longed for holy things. By the rivers of Babylon they sat down and they wept as they remembered Zion. I wonder whether you identify tonight with this longing for God, longing for spiritual reality, longing for truth. Have you had enough of a taste of this world and its empty pleasures? Have you run with your idols for long enough now? Well, now is the time for repentance. Now is the time to change. God is stirring you, and he's stirring you in unity with others to do this. When I was a, a, a lad, some of the ministers used to, the preachers used to talk about an aching void which the world can never fill. I identified with that. That was what I was experiencing as I was sort of experimenting with life as a youngster, exploring things, finding things out, And the preacher would say, have you got an aching void, an emptiness, something inside? And whatever you pursue, it can't be satisfied. It can't be filled. Because you need something else. You need something greater. You need God himself. An aching void, which the world can never fill. Well, I think these exiles, they knew something about that. And that's why they came back to Jerusalem. (laughs) So they were... So they were stirred, weren't they? They were stirred together in unity. The second thing that we notice about this stirring is that they were stirring, they were stirred to have a priority. To have a priority. So the first thing that the returned Israelites did, what was that, the returned exiles? What was the first thing they did? Well, this passage tells us they rebuilt the, the altar. They didn't start with the walls of the city. They didn't start with their own homes in Jerusalem. They didn't start even with the foundations of the temple, which is perhaps where you'd expect them to start. They started with the altar. In the book of Exodus, God had said about the altar, I will meet with you there. What a promise. What significance is invested in that? God says, I will meet with you at that place. That's what they longed for. They wanted to hear from God. They wanted to speak to God. They wanted communion with God. And God says, I will meet you at the altar. They needed God's help. They needed God's presence. There were these enemies all around. They couldn't do it on their own. And so verse 2 tells us that they built the altar of the God of Israel. Notice that. It wasn't their altar. It wasn't their idea. It was his. <coughs> they'd had all these years as a scattered people, and they'd, really, as we were reminded last week, they'd, they'd lost the sense of identity and belonging, really, of being Israel at all. They were hardly a nation, but now... As they rebuild this altar, they are aware once again that God is a covenant God, the God of his people, the faithful God, the God of Israel. That's a covenant name for God. It goes right back to Jacob, doesn't it? And their identity as the people of God, and they're recovering this now. And although they hadn't been a nation as Israel for a long time, they're coming back again now under the conscious protection of the God of Israel, his covenant nation. They wanted to rediscover his law. They wanted to come under his wings. And over and above everything else was the need for for sin to be dealt with, their sin. And temple worship was, after all, all about being reconciled to a holy God, meeting God. There must be these regular burnt offerings. Jessalyn helped us at the beginning of the service with the different kinds of offerings that were, were made. Well, they they didn't wait, you see, until they finished the whole building and then have a, a grand opening ceremony of the whole thing. They knew they needed that altar, and they built the altar, and they started offering the sacrifices on it straight away. And the message of that is that it is vital to be right with God. That's the first thing. Do you know that? Do you know that first, that vital, that it's vital To be right with God. It's vital for you, whoever you are here tonight, it's vital for you to be right with God. And the wonderful thing is that God himself provides the way. Just as certainly as he provided the altar for these exiles, and showed them the way, so too he shows you the way. He shows me the way to be right with God. Relatively, there were only a few of them, this remnant, and they were only a shadow of what they had once been, and yet they saw in this altar, the altar of all Israel. You know, in, in my preaching ministry over the years, I've quite often preached to very small congregations. And I've always admired the commitment of those people meeting, perhaps only half a dozen of them, But, you know, they take it as seriously as if they were worshipping in the company of thousands. And that's because every church is a microcosm of the universal church, and worship is always sacred. It must never be compromised, it must never be casual. Always there needs to be a sense of the awesome majesty of God. Always we need to find in New Testament worship Jesus Christ at the center, an appreciation of him and of his beauty and the, the privilege, the incredible privilege of meeting in the name of Jesus. And we too, of course, we know we need to be reconciled to God by the offering of an acceptable sacrifice, the merit and the name and the shed blood of Jesus. And always, as we come to worship, we must come to praise him for his great salvation, for a hope in his mercy. So these Jews, they knew they were doing something vital when among these ruins, They began building the altar. It was their priority. That altar was sanctified. It was appointed by God. It pointed forward to Jesus. You know, the background of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews is a wonderful New Testament book. And the background to it is Jews who had become Christians now being told by their families who were still Jews and their friends who were still Jews that they'd abandoned the God of Israel. They'd abandoned the worship of the living God. They were in a spiritual wilderness. They'd chosen to leave the company of the people of God and they were missing out big time. How could they be accepted by God if they were cut off from the temple? And from its altar and from its sacrifices. But the epistle, the letter to Hebrews tells them that they, they do have an altar. They do have sacrifice. They do have a temple. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 10, we have an altar. It says triumphantly. It's writing to Jews who are now Christians. We have an altar. The fundamental thing is in place. We do have our priority. We have the Lord Jesus Christ that in all things He may have the supremacy. He has done it. He has finished the great work of salvation. He has offered the sacrifice. The acceptable sacrifice has been placed on the altar. Jesus has died on the cross. He has shed his most precious blood to make an atonement for our sin. We have an altar, and having Christ, we have everything. We have all that we need for worship in him. All our prayers And all our praises are rightly offered in the name of Jesus, aren't they? That's what we're doing here together this evening. And all of them, when the Holy Spirit is present, are perfumed by the merits of the offering of himself as that Lamb of God, that precious Lamb of God, without blemish and without Spot and He, Jesus, is both the sacrifice and the altar. He fulfills everything, it all points to Him, and He's the one who sanctifies our offerings of worship and thanksgiving. So Christ is the sum and the substance of everything in real Christianity because He Himself is our meeting place with God. In him, we meet with God. In him, we are made right with God. In him, we are reconciled to God by faith in his name. He is the mediator, the one mediator between God and man. So let me ask you tonight, what is Jesus Christ to you? I'm not asking you about church and general beliefs and all that i'm just asking you about him are you in a personal relationship with him by faith in him do you know what it is to come to this altar and to lay your faith to lay its hand as it were upon this sacrifice and to confess your sin in this place and to find peace with god in this place there's nothing more wonderful than that to find that place of meeting with God and acceptance. And you see, it's Jesus Christ who is the center of all that we do here as a church at HCC. It's what we're about, we're about him. And this must always be our priorities. It was their priority to build the altar, so it's our priority to exalt Christ and to make him known. And the Apostle Peter says, unto you who believe in him, he is precious. Is he precious to you? You'll know if he is. Within your heart, you'll have the answer. Is Jesus Christ precious to you as your savior, as your redeemer? To all true believers, Christ is precious above all things. He's precious in his precious blood which cleanses us from all sin and from its guilt and from its controlling power. He's precious in the righteousness which he gives to us and in the reconciliation that he offers to us. He's he's precious in all the characters and offices, if I can put it that way, in which he's made known to us in the gospel. Can you see the attraction of the person of Jesus Christ? Can you see your need of him as the one the only one who can take away your sin and deliver you from hell Which is a real destination for those who don't believe to be your Savior Isn't it good news that you can Come to God by him. You're welcome to come to God by him, and in believing in him, you will find life in his name, eternal life in him. You see, if these exiles were so committed to the worship of God in a pattern that pointed to Christ, that's what it was, it was a pattern that pointed to Jesus, how much more should we be? Now that pattern is complete and fulfilled in this wonderful person. So they were stirred to work in unity, and they were stirred to have a priority, and then thirdly, they were stirred, we notice, to follow a template. They didn't follow their own ideas in this rebuilding project. They could have argued that a new beginning gave them a new opportunity to do things a bit differently, to kind of modernize and make things um, Easier, perhaps, to dumb down things a bit. But look at verse 2. They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. Listen. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. That's how they did it. That's the template. They built as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. The word of God was their template. The instructions that God had given Moses centuries ago. Yes, they were building with a sense of urgency. There was hostility all around them. It was a new situation, but they didn't take shortcuts. Verse 3 tells us that they placed the altar in its set place. That's the place it was in originally. And they offered their burnt offerings there by appointment, it tells us in this passage. As it's appointed, and as to the Lord. And then they reestablished the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And in that feast, they remembered the journey through the desert, and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and how God had miraculously provided for them in their desert wanderings. And at Tabernacles, there was a very elaborate sequence of offerings. If you look at the Book of Numbers and Chapter 29, it takes 27 verses to describe the offerings that were associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And now they carefully followed this same order, this same pattern, this same sequence. They kept the Feast of Booths, Ezra tells us, as it is written. That's how they did it. That's what they went on, as it is written. The number of the burnt offerings was important, the timing of them was important, their regularity was important, and it was all done by number according to the rule, verse four says, as each day required. So if they were so careful about the worship of God according to the Old Testament pattern, how much more careful should we be about the worship of God according to the New Testament pattern? With Christ always at the center. And then the other elements of our worship regulated by the word of God. Worship has essential elements, biblical elements, prayer, Bible reading, preaching and teaching, singing praise to God in the name of Jesus, fellowship. These are the essential elements of New Testament worship, and we cannot be careless or casual about it. And we're not free to innovate. We're not free just to go according to our own ideas in worship, because this is something that is laid down for us in God's Word. So they were stirred. They were stirred to work in unity. They were stirred to have a priority. And they were stirred by the Holy Spirit. Notice that. People often speak of the Holy Spirit as if it just gives sort of complete carte blanche to do what you want. He doesn't. They were stirred by the Holy Spirit to work according to a biblical template. Then finally, we notice that they were stirred enthusiastically to support the work. One thing is very clear from this passage, isn't it? That when people are spiritually stirred by the Holy Spirit, when they catch the vision, if you like, when the work then the work of God does get done. And it gets done voluntarily. The passage emphasizes that. There's no compulsion here. We saw it at the end of chapter 2, didn't we, in verses 68 and 69. The, it, where it says that some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings. The free will offerings are referred to again in our passage. Free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 60, 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 miners of silver, and 100 priests' garments. That, wasn't, that was quite substantial giving. They were facing huge costs, you see, in the rebuilding of this temple. And it involved great personal sacrifice to bring it about. But they were willing. They wanted to do it. They wanted to support the work. The passage ends in verse 7, our passage tonight, ends with a reference to the grants that they had from Cyrus the king. And that was a surprising thing, that Cyrus had opened the door and made all this possible. But that sort of gift from Cyrus was really a grace gift from God, wasn't it? It meant that they could employ these stone masons and carpenters, and they could trade with the Sidonians and the Tyrians, and they could bring these cedars from Lebanon, which must have made them think about the building of the first temple when, in such a grand way, Solomon organized the bringing of cedars from, from Lebanon. But it all required... Money, financial support. And verse seven in our passage tells us that they, they gave money. Just simply tells us they gave money and gifts in food and drink. Now, it's easy for us to just pass over that bit quite quickly. But for them, it must have been pretty big, wasn't it? It affected everything, it was, it was sacrificial. But God was stirring them, you see. That's the secret. Are you enthusiastic for the Lord's work? Enthusiastic, zealous. Is God stirring you to be like that? You know, material, sacrificial giving to the Lord's work is an important part of our response to Him and to His grace to us. And when we're stirred up to appreciate the riches, the kindness of his grace and the wonder and the freeness of his salvation. Well, it's bound to affect our pockets, isn't it? Our wallets, our bank balance, our diaries, our lifestyle choice, it's bound to. It touches the way we spend our money and what we give away and the causes that we give to. Now, in this church, we deliberately don't make giving very visible because we don't want to send out wrong messages about money. But it is an important part of our worship. And it is a a vital part of our response to God's grace. Many people tithe. Many do give very generously and sacrificially to the Lord's work in this place via the offerings box and via the gift aid scheme and so on. And every local church, big and small, needs this. There needs to be regular, systematic, thoughtful giving in order to sustain the ministries of the local church. And also, in the history of the local church, in the life of a local church, there are times of special need. It was a time of special financial need here in Ezra's day because there was a special work to be done in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And I think we can quite candidly say that in our church life at the moment as HCC, it is a special time of need because we're seeing growth. Praise God, we are seeing growth. New people are coming in, new groups of people are coming in, new cultures are being, Grafted into our life as a church. And so ministries are expanding and needs are expanding. And we've got opportunities for the gospel. Many more opportunities for the gospel now in 2024 than when I first started my ministry here in 1985. Very different scene. Lots more opportunities, lots more people, lots more strain in a way on our finances. And so we do need to catch the vision, don't we, brothers and sisters? We need uh, to be stirred. We need the Holy Spirit to stir us, as they were stirred in the day of Ezra. Psalm 110 gives us a secret. It says, my people, my dear people, God says this, my people shall be made willing in the day of my power. It needs power, and then the willingness follows. But the liberality follows. And what a blessing it is, isn't it? When people's hearts are, are open, when we see God's power more and more at work in the, in the local church, and when people really put their backs into it. In the world, there's a saying that you should put your money where your mouth is. I think in the Christian churches, you, you should put your money where your prayers are. Put your money where your prayers are. And the motivation for that? Well, never so that that one may earn you brownie points. Perish the thought. Never that that should be the thing that makes you right with God. Never that, that that should be the thing that becomes a kind of a bargaining chip with the living God to recommend yourself to him. Never that. But the motivation the love of God in Christ. Always that. The sweetness of sovereign grace, the freeness of it, the surprise of receiving God's love. Why me? Why me? Why should he have mercy on me? Why should he save me? Why should his grace come to me? And dear Isaac Watts says in his famous hymn, at the end of it, he says, were the whole realm of nature mine. If I had everything, if I could give the whole world, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love, that's the key. The love of God in Christ, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul my all. May God help us to respond in love. Amen.